0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Paying Tribute. Uh, I really enjoy this episode, so I think you're going to like it, too. It's uh, one of my favorite ones. Of course, once again, if you are enjoying this podcast, please like, comment, share, retweet, do whatever it is uh, you need to do. Share with your friends. Uh, If you think there's people you know that might enjoy listening to this podcast, please, please share it with them. Um, And and reach out, comment. Uh, It's always nice to hear from people uh, especially as I'm getting into some of these other stories, it's nice to hear, uh, how and if they're maybe resonating with people. Uh, so certainly reach out, uh, give it a rating on iTunes, like, comment, do whatever you need to do. Um, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, but anyway, without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Here we go. Episode four. Let's travel back to the summer of 2005, in Soldier Field, home of the Chicago Bears. A 23-year-old woman stands amongst thousands of other hopefuls, a band tied around her wrist marking her place in the process. Rain pours down on the crowd as they bundle for shelter under tarps and ponchos. In front of the young woman are 16 tents on the floor of the field. While without warning, she's sorted into a group of four other nervous hopefuls, with bands tied around their wrists as well. The group of four is brought into one of the tents where a couple of very important people sit behind a desk. Then, each of the four is given 20 seconds, no more, no less, 20 seconds to sing. The young woman decides to sing When You Believe by Stephen Schwartz from the 1998 Dreamworks film The Prince of Egypt. Why? Well, because it was Whitney and Mariah their only duet, two of her all-time idols. After the group of four have their twenty seconds, the three standing on either side of the young woman are told their journey ends here. They are immediately escorted out of the stadium. The young woman, on the other hand, is handed that elusive slip of paper, and it shines in her hand as her brain tries to process what just happened. She did it. She made it through. In her hands, she holds the golden ticket. Well this was the beginning of a journey that would change the life of young Crystal Stark. The beginning of her time as part of the cultural phenomenon known as American Idol. Her journey would lead her into the presence of Simon Cowell, Catherine McPhee, Ellen DeGeneres, and countless others. It also marked the beginning of a professional career that thrives to this day and one that carries an immense amount of respect and admiration for the legends that have gone before. In March of 2013, I had arrived in Tucson, Arizona, where I met Robert Shaw, the owner of Lonely Street Productions. We were about to embark on our journey of creating the musical comedy review show, The Best of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. I had been in Robert's home for only a few hours and was admiring the many show posters he had framed on the walls of his home office. His office was a sort of shrine to shows with titles like Try a Little Tenderness, a Salute to Otis Redding, Heartbreak Hotel, a Salute to Young Elvis, a Salute to the Rat Pack and Friends. I marveled at the posters. Hey, once this is done, you'll be up on those walls too, Robert had told me. (laughs) I wonder if our poster is up there now. One of the posters that caught my eye that day was for a show called The Doo-Wop Divas, featuring a quartet of women who paid tribute to the chart-topping singles of the 1960s. Songs such as It's My Party and Mr. Sandman. Well, one of those singers in the quartet was Crystal Stark. Crystal remained on my radar for many years, though we never ended up meeting. She was someone I could easily name drop, though. Yeah, I did a show with this company. They did a show with this girl. She was on American Idol. It added a certain amount of legitimacy when I talked to people about what I was doing. See guys, look! This isn't just an impersonation gig. This is professional show business. Well, remember Chris Dodge, the musical director from the Lonely Street production of the Martin and Lewis Show? Well, when he branched off to form his own company, Chris Dodge Entertainment, he and Crystal went on to produce a number of shows together, including an Ella Fitzgerald tribute and a stunning symphonic tribute to Donna Summer featuring the Tucson Pops Orchestra. And as I went on to produce more shows with Chris, without ever having interacted with Crystal, she remained in my peripheral. And so, just as I had with Matt Macis, I thought it time to reach out to her, get to know her and find out her story. Like all the people featured on this podcast, her tale follows an unusual path, one with many twists and turns, equal parts unusual and remarkable in its simple nature. And it all begins with a young girl, singing along to Whitney Houston, in a makeshift tree fort in a Tucson, Arizona backyard. I'm Nicholas Arnold, and this is Paying Tribute.
1: they were not musicians in any way. My mom played some piano and taught me some things but just songs, you know, not like piano basics. Um, And my dad, I mean, he thinks that he has the voice of an angel, but he does not. (laughs) Um, But there was always music in the house because they loved to dance and they loved disco and they loved R&B and soul. They always had parties, they loved to party. And so everybody would come over and there would always be a dance party and the electric slides always happened at least once. It was always a fun atmosphere um, of music.
0: Although her parents were in no way professional musicians, Crystal described her upbringing to me as being incredibly musically inclined, heavily influenced by the music her parents listened to day in and day out.
1: My mom's favorite was Al Green. She just loved Al Green. And my dad, you know, funk, like old school funk. His favorite song is No Parkin' on the Dance Floor. But gosh, he loves that song. Every time it comes on, it's
0: his jam. Like many of the people I talked to, Crystal paid less attention to what her peers were listening to and was more inclined to listen to the oldies that came from her parents' radio. Though, as she grew older, she began to acknowledge what was being produced at the time in the early 90s, recognizing it as groundbreaking and talent-ridden artists such as Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. She recalls having the best-selling soundtrack to The Bodyguard on cassette tape and listening to it over and over, belting out the words to I Will Always Love You.
1: I remember riding the bus, she would come on the radio, and every single kid on the bus would just belt that song. And I was so glad that I could sing my Whitney out loud in the open because everybody was singing so you know, nobody could really hear me. She was a force of nature. It was, you know, it's kind of like, how could you not love her? With Mariah, it was, I remember, I was really hot, we were in the car, we were at the grocery store, it summertime, I was waiting for my mom, I was listening to the radio, and um, someday came on, and she hit that whistle tone at the end, and I felt like my whole world flipped upside down. I was like, what is that? <laughs> that blew my mind. That moment was just like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize people could even do that with their voice.
0: Listening to Whitney and Mariah marked the beginning of Crystal's foray into singing. She would attempt the many vocal acrobatics of Whitney while listening to her cassette. You
1: know, I've tried my darndest to (laughs) whistle tone, but it's not in the cards for me. I was always singing that and Arisa. Arisa was another one that I always sing and try to emulate. In my room or the backyard. I had a little makeshift treehouse I'd go and sing in all the time.
0: There in her treehouse, Crystal discovered her ability to sing alongside the greats, from Whitney Houston to Aretha Franklin, embracing the music of her time and of her parents' generation all at once.
1: And would go up there, and I had a telescope, and I would like try to spy on the neighborhood. And then I had a board from the tree going over to the roof, and I would screw across that and be on the roof and be singing up there all the time. And I remember one time, uh, I guess our neighbor heard me, maybe she was new, like just moved in, and she went and told my mom, like, oh, I heard your daughter singing. And my mom was like, oh, you know, like, I'm sorry, was she bothering you? the neighbor was like, oh no, I, I thought I had like left the radio on, you know? And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> like, nobody had said that. To me, I hadn't really sung in front of anybody. So I remember I was like, oh, because I thought I was in trouble. One summer, my mom signed me up for this like, musical theater camp. And I get up there and I, I sing my song. I sing Rescue Me. And I didn't have a karaoke track because like, karaoke wasn't super big at the time, because this was a while ago. So I just had to sing over the original artist and then somebody went up and sang after I sang, and and I looked at my friend, and I was like, why aren't they using their real voice? <laughs> and it sounds so awful. I feel like such a horrible person now, but I had no idea. I was like, where? no, that's their play around voice. Where's their real voice? Their real singing voice. <laughs> and she was like, that is her real singing voice. And I was like, what? Because this girl had been telling us the whole time, oh, I have a record deal, and this is a song that I'm working on with my producer, and blah blah blah. So I was like, oh, wow, she's, like, legit. And then she got up there, and she sang her song, and she had a track, like, she was all, like, legit. And I just was like, oh, wait, what? Huh? And I was really confused as to why she had any kind of record deal or manager or anything like that. And that's when I started to get an idea of, oh, okay, maybe I don't sing like everybody else.
0: Her love for singing the popular songs of an adult generation brought her to many weddings where she would do small gigs as a singer, often resorting to the vocal stylings of Aretha and, of course, Etta James. Crystal's parents had split by this point, her mother having to work a number of jobs just to support her. As a result, Crystal developed a certain independence well beyond her young age, taking matters into her own hands when it came to getting around. She would bike to where she needed to go, take the city bus, and learned early on, life will always happen to you, but you can make life happen. What she was lacking at this time was some sort of guide. Someone to tell her, hey, you're talented, you can do something with that talent. That was until her middle school choir teacher noticed her amongst a classroom of students.
1: She helped me to sing my first big solo in front of people, which was Whitney Houston's One Moment in Time. And we worked on it after school, like, every day. And I got up to sing. I was terrified. I wouldn't move. And I had this big hair that I couldn't do anything with. It was like huge head of hair and this tiny little girl. And I just stood there frozen, but I sang. And I sang full out. And everybody loved it. And the other parents were not happy that I got this big solo. <laughs> and their kids didn't. Um, so she kind of got some slack for it. And she would bring me to some of her gigs outside of school to sing with her. You know, she went way above and beyond the extra mile for me. And I'm forever grateful to her.
0: It was clear Crystal had talent and was going places with it. Years later, she eventually found herself at the University of Arizona, majoring in music.
1: And I wasn't going to major in music. I wanted to be a veterinarian. And my mom was like, "Well, why don't you major in music?" I was like, "Cause I want to be a doctor." And she was like, "Well, you can be. You can get your doctorate in music." I was like, "You can?" <laughs> I had no clue.
0: There, she studied under the guidance of famed operatic soprano Faye Robinson, a veteran of opera companies from all over the world. Places like Vienna, Paris, Berlin, Hamburg, Frankfurt, Munich, Dusseldorf, Madrid, Buenos Aires, New Orleans, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, San Diego, and the New York City Opera. She
1: has these big opera plans for me, and you know, I worked really hard and learned all my opera and sang in German and French and Italian and whatever I'm supposed to
0: sing in. While studying with Fay, Crystal discovered a sort of underground vocal jazz community. And while she was still working very hard at her opera, she couldn't help but feel this incredible pull towards the dark world of jazz.
1: He did not like that I also sang jazz. And I was like, but you know, it's where I fit in. It's where I feel like I'm supposed to be. I knew I wasn't going to be an opera singer, it just wasn't me. So I got bumped off the list, had to study with a TA for a semester. And then the next semester, I asked Jeff Haskell if I could study with him.
0: Jeff Haskell is an Emmy award-winning composer and performer. He founded the Tucson Jazz Orchestra and produced and conducted over 800 concerts in 49 states, six Canadian provinces, as well as England and Scotland
1: and our lessons mostly consisted of him pulling out song after song after song after song, finding a key that worked for me in that song, and just singing. Just singing these old jazz standards and just random jazz tunes that he had archived. Even though I had a really great time with Professor Haskell, it wasn't vocal training. It was putting together a a jazz book, you know, which is helpful. But I knew that I, I needed vocal training, um, and that's what Faye was providing me.
0: Crystal eventually found her way back to Faye, convincing her to take her on again, and the two worked at developing her training and physical technique. Through Jeff, she found her repertoire, and through Faye, she discovered her voice and how to use it. And
1: I just both, I wanted it all. I'm like, I'm here, I'm studying, I want everything.
0: Crystal was on her way to becoming a singing sensation. But more was to come. More that would challenge her. A lot more. In 2002, a brand new TV show swept the nation and created a phenomenon amongst the talented and the supremely untalented. Anyone who thought they could be somebody in the music industry was captivated by the tornado of success that was American Idol. Based on a British show called Pop Idol, created by Simon Fuller, American Idol debuted on Fox in the summer of 2002. Hosted by Ryan Seacrest, the show featured judges Randy Jackson, Paula Abdul, and the acid-tongue's Simon Cowell, and showcased thousands of hopefuls across America competing for the top prize and title of American Idol. By the time contestants were narrowed down to the top 20 or so, viewers at home could actually vote on their favorite by phoning in at the end of an episode. A winner was eventually chosen by process of elimination. Well by 2004, American Idol became the most watched show in US television history.
1: It was huge! I would record it on VHS, and then bring it in to the music school, and we would sit around the TV and we would watch the latest episode of American Idol together, because it was huge. It was such a big deal, I was infatuated.
0: By 2005, Idol had already claimed four winners, some of them accumulating more commercial success than others. Kelly Clarkson, Ruben Studdard, Fantasia Barrino, and Carrie Underwood. By that summer, American Idol had cemented its place as a pop culture staple and a surefire way to obtain stardom if you had the talent.
1: I think it wasn't until the third season that we realized, oh, okay, well, like this is hanging around and people are auditioning and it's a huge thing. And I remember my friends going out and auditioning, really talented, talented people, and then coming back and and not getting chosen and not going any further. And I was like, oh, you know, like they're super great. They would be great on the show watching it and I don't know what happened, something must have happened to where I was like, fed up. Like, you know what? I can totally do this. If they have another season, I'll totally audition and I kind of just, okay, you know what? Yeah. I will audition.
0: So here we are, back where we started our story with Crystal in Soldier Field in Chicago. Crystal and her brother had decided Chicago would be the cheapest place to travel to and stay for the auditions. In an incredible gesture of support, her brother paid for everything, the entire trip, so that she was able to have a chance at her dream.
1: And we're all bundled up because it's raining, it's miserable, and I'm like, oh, I don't think I can sing in this rain. And you're sitting for so long that it's so hard to keep everything warmed up to keep your vocal mechanism, like, ready. So I kept going in the bathroom every so often to just, I'd go into the stall and just sing.
0: Rain poured on the thousands of applicants as they waited in the packed soldier field.
1: And right before it was time for me to sing, the sun came out. It was just, like, bright, and then it warmed up, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's a sign!
0: (laughs) Crystal sang When You Believe from the Prince of Egypt for 20 short seconds. And watched as her fellow hopefuls sang their pieces beside her. The girls on either side of Crystal were abruptly sent home after their brief, potentially life changing auditions. Crystal was given the golden ticket. Crystal was sent home and asked to return the following day for yet another round of auditions, prior to the supposed first round that is actually aired on TV. This time, she faced the executive producers, When You Believe, armed and ready.
1: Tons of people, a huge cameras and so
0: bright. Crystal sang, and once again received yet another green light. And
1: then they were like, yeah, come back in like five days. I was like,
0: oh, okay. Crystal flew back to Tucson to resume work at her local church, where she had obtained a position as the church musical director. She did a quick Sunday service, then flew back to Chicago with her mom. Same place, right back where she had been only a week prior. This time, Ryan Seacrest was there. Along with Randy Jackson, Paula Abdul, and Simon Cowell.
1: Well, you're standing outside the room, waiting to go in. You see person after person come out in tears, you know? And you're like, oh, great. This is just gonna be a bundle of laughs, you know? Like, I don't wanna go in that room. So then it's time for you to go in the room, and you're like, all right, you ready? And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. You're not ready. I wasn't ready. And so I just was trying to breathe. And then they're like, okay, it's your turn, go. And you're like, oh, well, here you go. It's like being shot out of a cannon. And you go in, and I just was shocked to see the judges in person because they looked exactly how they look on TV. And I wanted to go up and poke them to see if they were real. They look like wax figures. They're just. It just was crazy to me. Uh, But they tell you like 20 times, do not approach the table, do not go up to the table. We have bodyguards, they can tackle you and all this stuff. I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't want to go anywhere near them. And then, you know, it's just like, all right, who are you? What are you going to sing?
0: Crystal sang her piece in front of the silent stares of the three judges. She finished and waited.
1: Simon was great. He was like, I loved it. You know, he was like, you I was like, okay. and then Randy and Paula were on the fence and I was super surprised because they're always the nice ones. And I was like, really?
0: She needed two out of three votes to advance to the next round, the Hollywood round, that took place in California and launched any given season of Idol. She had Simon's vote, a notoriously difficult vote to get. Now she just needed one of the other two. Paula and Randy studied her information sheet in front of them. On it, it stated that she was a vocal teacher.
1: I was like, I would expect more from a voice teacher.
0: Her chance was fading away fast. Would she be one of the ones to emerge from the room in tears, having to be consoled by Ryan Seacrest in the waiting room? But then, the judges deliberated, with Simon maintaining his stance that she should advance. Finally, Paula and Randy reluctantly agreed. Crystal received her golden ticket. The real one. The one that's seen on TV and emerged from the room to cheers and applause from her mother and fellow applicants. At times it's humorous to hear how casual and nonchalant Crystal is about her idol journey. Yeah, so then I got a golden ticket, then Simon said this, then I went out and was all excited for the cameras. But you gotta realize, it was actually some time ago now, 12 years or so, and a lot has happened since, both personally and professionally. A large part of the audition process slips into foggy memories. Next up, however, was Hollywood Week. In Hollywood Week, 200 applicants who had been narrowed down from hundreds of thousands competed in front of each other and in front of Simon, Paula, and Randy, who eventually narrowed them down to their selected semi finalists. It's
1: a whole hullabaloo, and they, they pick you up from the airport and they bring you to the hotel. You have a roommate, everybody has a roommate, everybody's just trying to like size each other up. And, and try to get their bearings and I'm at that point I was very religious and was just so like inherently kind and wanting the best for everybody and I wasn't going into it being like okay who can I tear down and how can I like get to the top. I was just going into it like okay, you know this is a great experience, a great opportunity and but I noticed how cutthroat everybody was and it terrified me.
0: Crystal was after all on a reality show. And at this point, reality shows had been around long enough, many people knew how to play the game, so to speak, in front of the cameras. It naturally becomes an extremely tense and cutthroat competitive environment. And with hundreds of contestants in their early 20s in one hotel, well, one could expect nothing less. The contestants were sent to the Orpheum Theatre in downtown Hollywood, where they sang one at a time in front of the judges. Immediately from that first round, people were cut their idle journey abruptly ending as they boarded flights home. Crystal remained.
1: And then it was, we had to do like, group work. We had to pick our groups, and like, you saw everybody sing, so you're like, oh, you know who you want to be in a group with. I, I don't know if it was smart or not, but I wanted to be in a group with Catherine McPhee because she was flipping amazing. I was like, oh my goodness.
0: Catherine McPhee is an American actress, singer, and songwriter. Her most recent claim to commercial fame was through the short-lived but ever-popular NBC musical drama, Smash. She would eventually win over the hearts of the American public through her Idol journey, finishing as runner-up against Idol season 5 winner, Taylor Hicks. Of course at this point she was just another audition hopeful, another name in a long list of names praying to make it big on the national stage. But she was talented, and Crystal recognized this right away.
1: out of this world. And so I made a beeline for her and I was like, girlfriend, your, your voice is just, it just blew my mind. Like, let's be in a group. And she was
0: like, okay. Within a day of being in Hollywood, Crystal had saddled up and made friends with a person who would eventually make it to the final episode of American Idol season five. As the groups rehearsed, they faced the harsh reality of competing on a national television show.
1: They keep you up for 24 hours. There wasn't really any food. You know, they're trying to push people to the point to where they start breaking and then they can get their good TV.
0: Crystal and Catherine had formed a group of three with another unnamed participant.
1: Our group started getting into a fight. Well, Catherine and the other chick started, like, fighting. And the cameras were, like, wanting to catch it. And I was like, no!
0: In an act of protection, Crystal did her best to move her group away from the cameras, making it difficult for them to capture the tension. A decision that, while kind likely made Crystal's survival on a competition reality show very difficult, in the producers' minds anyway.
1: Looking back, I'm like, oh gosh, I should have just let that happen, because then I'd have gotten more airtime. They told us, they're like, if you forget words, you might as well just pack your bags and go home. We were like, oh, oh no!
0: Well the trio did end up forgetting the words when they finally performed in front of the judges.
1: But then for Words, and they didn't go home it was just a threat to terrify everybody which it did so our group made it and we sang one more time and you sang by yourself with whoever was left by this time it was like thanksgiving christmas is holiday time so we were taking like a month and a half off and we were going to come back in january and that was that was hollywood week it was crazy Well, after Hollywood Week, uh, you take like a month and a half off, and then you come back in January. And that's the long walk. They call that episode the long walk.
0: In the long walk episode, the 40 or so contestants who are left are narrowed down to a small 20 or so. From here, they move on to the live episodes in front of an audience and the entire American public. At this point, the show had been airing for a few weeks and audiences around the country were beginning to get invested.
1: You all just sit in a room, nobody has to sing, there's no singing. It's all based on, you know, what you've done in the past. And I remember the producers coming in and they said, all right, up until this point, who feels like they haven't had a lot of airtime on the show?
0: Who hasn't had enough airtime? Crystal was kind, nice, generous, and not the least bit controversial. Further to that, the one fight she seemed to be a part of in the peripheral, between Catherine McPhee and their third group member, she had gone out of her way to hide it from the ever-watching cameras. She had barely been on the show, a blink-or-you'll-miss-her participant, Well, her hand shot right up. She looked around the room and her stomach sank. She was the only one with her hand up.
1: That's not good, that's not a good sign. I, I didn't realize that. And then you have to take an elevator up.
0: Crystal's heart was pounding. Somehow she knew, the moment she raised her hand, that she had sealed her fate. But perhaps, there was still a chance.
1: And then you get off the elevator and you have to walk down this long corridor, and the judges are at the end at a table, and you sit down. And I sit down and Simon's like, all right, well, you know, This was not a unanimous decision.
0: Words that could go either way. But in fact, her time on American Idol had come to an end.
1: Okay, you know, thanks. And then Paula's like, you should audition next year. And I was like, they've told us like 10 times that we can't audition ever again if we make it this far. (laughs) She was like, oh no, you can audition. I was like, yeah, but there's paperwork. Okay, whatever, bye.
0: And just like that, Crystal Stark was sent home. She had made it from hundreds of thousands of hopefuls to a small group of the top 45.
1: I remember going back down the elevator and getting off and Ryan Seacrest going, well, how did it go? Yay or nay? And I was like, it was a no. And I remember the whole room went, oh, like they were so shocked. And I was like, oh, well, that's nice. I didn't think you guys thought I had shot. That's nice of you feel so bad
0: for me. At this point, Crystal and Catherine McPhee had formed a close bond, using each other as confidants in a brutal dog-eat-dog environment.
1: Catherine was pissed, so she starts like cursing and getting all pissed and talking around secrets about it. Um, I was fine. I was like, you know what? It just wasn't meant to be, you know? Like, this is—it it is what it is. And I didn't really cry about it. I was like, well, okay, cool. And then Catherine was like so sad, and she's very sweet. And I would, I kept in contact with her. When the when the show kept going on, she would text me. And, but that was my journey. Just kind of like a, you know, just fizzled out.
0: <laughs> but Crystal's luck would turn around a couple of years after the end of American Idol's fifth season. She was married at this point and had moved on from her experience in Hollywood. That is, until she received a call from Catherine McPhee.
1: And she was like, hey, I am auditioning people to go on tour with me, you should come audition. I was like, great, I'm there.
0: Crystal flew to Los Angeles to audition where she reunited with Ricky Miner, the musical director on American Idol. Ricky also served as the musical director on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and has worked on numerous superstar tours, including Ray Charles, Alicia Keys, Christina Aguilera, Beyonce, and Whitney Houston.
1: It was. It was But I made the cut, and I was one of Catherine's backup singers for her TV promotional tour off of her new album. And it was fantastic. It was, like, the best time of my life. I I felt like I was finally with people who had the same drive that I had and the same, like, attention to detail. And it just felt like home. I loved it. I loved singing back up. I would sing back up in a heartbeat.
0: The tour for Catherine McPhee's self-titled debut album led Crystal to performing on The Tonight Show, The Today Show, Rachel Ray, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, and countless other appearances amongst the national concert stages.
1: I mean, it was so much fun. It, and, and the band, it was just like this little family, and and everybody was just like the same type of, of person. So like, it was so cool.
0: Prior to all the appearances, while rehearsing for the tour, Crystal began to feel a little off. In an effort to confirm what she already suspected, she stopped into a Taco Bell restroom, a restroom she had to pay $0. 25 cents to enter and $0. 25 cents to leave.
1: So, I find out and I call my husband, oh my god, I'm pregnant! You know, I was freaking out and I felt so alone.
0: It was Super Bowl Sunday. Crystal was sitting with Catherine at a sports bar watching the game.
1: And I told her, I was like, yeah, I'm pregnant. She's like, oh, that's fine. I around and blah, blah, blah. I like, okay.
0: A few months later, however, another opportunity would come Crystal's way, making matters even more complicated. The producers of American Idol reached out to her, asking her if she would be interested in singing backup for the American Idol tour. The tour crossed over her expected due date.
1: And I was like, I... I can't do it. And it was the hardest thing ever, ever, to, to not be able to do that. I was devastated. I was so sad. Um, so, you know, that's when my parenting and, and the performance stuff started, you know, colliding. Um, But the American Idol moniker that I... Now, had held a lot of cred, and I got a lot of gigs and a lot of shows just from having been on the show. And you know, here we are, what, 12 years later, still talking about American Idol and my experience on the show because it was that big of a deal.
0: Years went by. The McPhee tour ended, American Idol continued to do its thing, and Crystal returned back home to Tucson, Arizona where life as a mother took over. But the idol moniker did indeed help her continue to pursue a singing career on the side. Incredible life-changing opportunities continued to fall on her doorstep.
1: I was just kinda chilling, and I got a call one day, hey, can you uh, sing like a 30-minute set to open up for Bob Newhart in like two weeks? I was like, yeah, that sounds great.
0: Crystal met the charming Bob Newhart and opened for his show at the Desert Diamond Casino in Glendale, Arizona, bringing a handful of her own tried-and-true charts to present to the orchestra.
1: And we met him backstage, and small, very short, very short guy, but very kind. He shared his uh, deli meat tray with me because I didn't have any food in my dressing room. I thought that was nice.
0: Well, aside from the odd and incredible gig here and there, Crystal focused on being a mother to her now two boys. She taught back in Tucson, providing private vocal lessons and continuing her work as musical director at her local church. Months would go by where her personal life would become the focus, and then another gig would come along that seemed to take her creative career in different, unexpected directions. She formed a small singing group with a trio of women called the Triple Threat. While well, the Triple Threat was booked to do a blues show in Tucson, and that's where Crystal met the talented Chris Dodge, who had been hired as a pianist for the gig.
1: And so we did the show, it was great. Then, a few months later, I get a call of the blue from Chris Dodge saying, hey, we're doing this tribute to Otis Redding show and we need a female kind of co-star. Are you free? And he gave me like nine dates. He's like, you know, these are all the dates. You have to do all of them or you can't be a part of the show.
0: Chris was strict when it came to booking, A style I've become very familiar with. All a part of the many things that have made him so successful in the entertainment industry. At the time, Chris was producing the Otis Redding tribute with Robert Shaw through Robert's company Lonely Street Productions. This was still a few years before I would encounter the pair and begin my journey into the world of professional performing. Crystal had two gigs already booked that conflicted with the dates Chris had provided her. She cancelled them and signed on with Chris and Robert.
1: I firmly believe In female intuition. And I feel like one of my gifts is discernment. And I could just feel, I just knew, like in my core, like this is what I'm supposed to do. This is really important. I need to do this.
0: Crystal met Walter Belcher, another staple of the Lonely Street and Chris Dodge families. Walter would be playing tribute to Otis.
1: And he's just fantastic. He's like my brother from another mother. And it would just fit like a glove. And working with Dodge, of course, it's
0: wonderful. At this early in Crystal's career, it would have been a stretch to call her a tribute artist, and in many ways it still is. But in working with Chris Dodge and Robert Shaw, she had unknowingly entered the world of nostalgia entertainment, and it would propel her career in a big way. She watched as audiences from all over Arizona clamored to see Walter sing in homage to Otis Redding, easily considered one of the greatest soul and R&B singers in the history of American popular music.
1: When we would get to a song that was really recognizable to them, they would start clapping on the intro, and I had never really experienced that.
0: She was witnessing the effect that nostalgia had on audiences as they relived the memories that the lyrics and melodies contained.
1: And listening to them say, oh, man, you know, the first time I heard that song was when I was blah, 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 and they would share these memories, or they would share about, oh, yeah, I saw Otis writing live, and and I realized that it was a walk down memory lane for them and a time for them to to remember, um, kind of like a golden, a golden era.
0: Crystal had made an impact with Robert and Lonely Street Productions and began developing future shows with them. Following Robert's mandate that a tribute show should not be an impersonation, they began expanding their boundaries and created a show called The Doo-Wop Divas a review concert featuring four singers as they relived the golden years of doo-wop and early rock and roll. It featured chart-topping hits as the girls belted out songs like My Boyfriend's Back and Leader of the Pack, with signature-tight harmonies and buckets of charm.
1: You have four-part harmony, choreography, blocking, lines, and it it was just like, whoa. And I hadn't done anything like that, because I'm more of a a gig singer, I didn't have a musical theatre background. It was like I was just learning everything on the fly and trying to just keep up with everybody else and not be the weak link. And it was just hit after hit after hit. And I, I loved it. It was hard. I remember sitting on the ground before the first show and another member in the group had made this like diagram of where we're supposed to stand for which songs on stage because we were terrified. Like. <laughs> We were like, wait. And and we were nervous for our first show because we didn't have a whole bunch of rehearsals, but we did it. And then I, I was like, wow, we actually pulled that off.
0: Yeah, she pulled it off. Just recently, Crystal completed a tour of the doo Divas in Florida, where she served as vocal director, musical director, and tour director for the entire show.
1: When I first did this, I didn't even know if I could make it through my own little part, and now I'm directing this, the whole thing.
0: In the years that passed, and after I would have my own time with Lonely Street, Chris Dodge's success led him to creating his own company, Chris Dodge Entertainment, and in doing so he had to start from the ground up. He knew he wanted his first show with his newly established company to feature Crystal. But how and in what capacity? Well, he had a few ideas.
1: So we were trying to like figure it out. I'm like, I don't
0: know. Chris brought up the idea of Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald was an American jazz singer often referred to as the Queen of Jazz, or perhaps more affectionately, Lady Ella. It was her purity of tone, her diction, phrasing, and incredible scat singing that brought her to immense fame and legendary status in the 1940s. Ella's success would have her collaborating with the likes of Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, and Duke Ellington. Her work was described by New York Times columnist Frank Rich as a cultural transaction, as extraordinary as Elvis's contemporaneous integration of white and African American soul. Here was a black woman popularizing urban songs often written by immigrant Jews to a national audience of predominantly white Christians. Ella grew up listening to Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, and the Boswell Sisters, idolizing the lead singer of the latter, once stating, My mother brought home one of her records and I fell in love with it. I tried so hard to sound just like her. In 1932, Ella's mother died after a car accident, when Ella was only 15 years old. She was left in the care of her stepfather for a brief amount of time until she eventually lived with her aunt in Harlem. It is speculated, though not confirmed, that the reason for the swift change was due to possible abuse from her stepfather. The traumas of Ella's early childhood led to her skipping school, and she opened herself up to the dark world of Harlem by working as a lookout for a brothel. When the law eventually caught wind of her, she was sent to an orphanage and eventually a reformatory school for girls in New York. She eventually escaped and for a time was homeless. Ella survived by singing on the streets of Harlem and eventually made her most important amateur appearance by singing at the age of 17 in what would eventually become the famous amateur nights at the Apollo Theater. Back in 1934, there was no fame or legendary status associated with this event whatsoever. She won the first prize of $25. And from there, a number of connections and opportunities fell into place, and slowly, over the years, Ella Fitzgerald became the legend we know today. Well, I could go on and on about Ella here on this podcast, but if you don't know who she is by now, The best place to start is by listening to her. Crystal jumped at the opportunity to do Ella. She didn't look like her, but she could actually scat. Here's her with Chris Dodge on keys. It was so easy.
1: This is the first time I had worked with just Chris and myself you know, not under Lonely Street, not with a whole band, just the two of us. And it was just like so great. We just everything just fell into place. And I was like, oh my gosh, can we do this all the time? Because <laughs> it was the the best process working with Dodge. I just I just wanted to honor her and I was hoping that people would would recognize that and take that and know that I'm still putting my own spin on it because I can't help it. I'm me and she's her.
0: Her passion for everything Ella stood for would form the roots of a strong and immensely popular show that exists to this day, To Ella with Love.
1: I have to say it's one of the hardest shows that I've ever done and had to learn because, you know, you think you know this stuff. You think I've been listening to Ella most of my life and you know, have all these CDs and my favorite recordings that I sing along to all the time. But then we sit down to actually dissect her phrasing and her scatting and and the way she does things. It's like, oh my goodness, no. No, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. (laughs) I was like, excuse me? And the woman turned around, she's like a teenager. And she's like, yes. And I said, can you please tell me whose voice is playing right now, who's singing? She turns around she goes, well, it's Ella Fitzgerald, duh. <laughs> and I was like, I'm eight, duh.
0: <laughs> that clip you just heard isn't actually from the formal To Ella With Love concert, but rather a different show entirely. Around the time Chris started his company, he had met a charismatic, enigmatic, and charming man who went by the name of Mr. Bing. Now, when I say enigmatic, charismatic, and charming, I mean it. Mr. Bing is a character you couldn't write if you tried. A wildly inspiring and passionate individual who is rarely seen not dressed to the nines, with his blonde hair slicked back, ever shiny, rings on his fingers, and a suit, always a suit, cufflinks and all. And if the song suggests you're never fully dressed without a smile, Mr. Bing is always fully dressed, always smiling. I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Bing on my last trip to Arizona, and he made a lasting impression on me, as he does with all those he meets. Mr. Bing was connected with Chris through a mutual friend, and he had a vision. To bring back the supper club to a modern audience. Back in the day, a supper club was a place where top-notch entertainment met five-star cuisine in a rich and exuberant dining experience. It was a common, atmospheric setting, much like many of the high-end nightclubs I talked about in the first episode of this podcast. It's become less common as time has gone on. Mr. Bing had a vision to bring it back, and he had the place to do it. Hacienda del Sol Guest Ranch Resort in Tucson, Arizona. A historic resort elevated north of the city with a storied history that includes John Wayne and Clark Gable as guests. It was also a favorite romantic hideaway of Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. There, Mr. Bing laid down the roots for his brand new Supper Club series, fittingly called Mr. Bing Presents. A show where the golden age of Hollywood comes alive each month through dancing, dinner, and song. In starting his Supper Club series, Mr. Bing wanted Chris as his musical director. And with that role, Crystal Stark has, in the years since, become a routine performer at the Supper Club. And with admission running upwards of $100 a plate, her sellout nights are a must see.
1: In that moment, then I had a name and I had
0: a voice that I had listened to, and I fell in love instantly. Do you have a moment like that, Dodge? Every time I listen to you sing. <laughs> True that story. was smooth. That was really smooth. Yeah. <laughs> the successful partnership of Crystal Stark and Chris Dodge led to yet another mammoth collaboration a Donna Summer tribute.
1: I was like, that's fantastic. I love Donna Summer.
0: LaDonna Adrian Gaines better known by her stage name, Donna Summer, was an American singer-songwriter who rose to fame during the disco era of the late 1970s. A five-time Grammy Award winner, Summer's hits include Hot Stuff, Bad Girls, and I Feel the Love, amongst many others. Like Crystal, Donna's early life revolved around a church choir. Summer's earliest performance debut actually occurred at church at the age of 10, when she replaced a vocalist who failed to show up for a gig. Donna's first professional gig came after high school when she auditioned for a role in the Munich production of the musical Hair. She landed the part of Sheila. Eventually becoming fluent in German, she starred in three other musicals in Munich, The Me Nobody Knows, Godspell, and Showboat, and began developing a professional career as a singer, releasing her first single, a German version of the song Aquarius, from Hair. From there, luck and fortune took off. Summer died in 2012 after battling lung cancer, and in 2016, Billboard magazine ranked her as the sixth most successful dance artist of all time. For Chris Dodge, Crystal was the perfect person to pay tribute to Donna's music live on stage.
1: To me, it's closer to my roots of my funk and disco that I grew up listening to with my parents. It's such great music. It's a big show. It's a really, really big show.
0: A big show indeed. After initially performing Last Dance, a tribute to Donna Summer, Chris and Crystal worked at converting the show into a symphonic pops orchestra tribute. The result was Hot Stuff, a symphonic tribute to Donna Summer. In June of 2017, they premiered it to an enthusiastic audience of over 5,000 people. By 2017, Crystal had already racked up enough experiences most people only dream of. But her life wasn't always easygoing, and certainly not without heartaches, trials, and tribulations. Eventually, she and her husband, the father of her two boys, ended their marriage. A life-changing decision that had her moving and losing her job as a music director at her local church, as they frowned heavily upon the idea of divorce. About five years ago, her life was, in her words, spiraling out of control, until she met Bill, now her fiancé and longtime love.
1: He really came in and just took care of me and just loved me. You know, we joke, because I'm like, you told me you loved me like two weeks after we were together. (laughs) And he's like, no, no, it's like a month. I'm like, no!
0: In 2015, Crystal decided it was time to focus on developing a solo career as an artist. The result was her first full-length album, aside from an EP produced a few years earlier. Her album, One Way, was released on May 30th, and featured original compositions by Crystal, leaning heavily on her soul and jazz roots. I
1: started writing the album when I was still married, and and then when the album, uh, when I had my CD release, I was divorced and had a (laughs) fiancé. It's just really coming from the heart about what I was going through at that time in my life. And now to look back on it, it's just like, I'm just like, wow.
0: With the release of her album and her combined other successes, May 30th was declared by the mayor of Tucson, to her surprise, as Crystal Stark Day. Announced live on stage at her CD release show. Great for 90, for 90, uh, but he does sign it. I, Jonathan Rothschild, Mayor of the City of Penson, Arizona, do hereby proclaim May thirtieth, twenty fifteen, to be Crystal's Star Day. In speaking to Crystal, it becomes more and more clear as our conversation goes on where her success comes from. A generous, caring and open heart that has said yes to so many opportunities in its path. From the little girl who sang along to Whitney Houston in her makeshift tree fort, to American Idol, to Ella Fitzgerald and Donna Summer, to Crystal Stark, the singer-songwriter. She has proven time and time again that she is a force to be reckoned with, and a star who will continue to rise. But no matter where her career goes, the place where her fame and glory will be most recognized will always be at home with her two boys.
1: They tell me all the time. They're like, Mommy, we know you're famous. I'm like, no, I'm not really famous. Yes, you are. You sing all the time. and They they think I'm Beyonce or something, but I'm not. (laughs) Well, I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had, for the people that have come into my life and really helped me to grow. You know, all of my teachers because I, I was always this meek kind of church mouth. I don't know that, that I would have done it on my own. The opportunities that I've had with Idol and then that going well, because you never know who they're gonna pick. It's not really based on talent all the time. So I'm really glad that that I got to go and do as much as I did with Idol and the doors that that opened up. Knowing that I can do it, that I'm strong enough to do it on my own is, is really cool. You know, I'm just gonna keep putting one foot in front of the other, and trying to hone my skills, and hopefully people will want to see it. Thank you for doing the things you do. I want, want to show what a perfect reason to have her back to celebrate the release of her first full-length album, Chris Lee here to invite everyone.
0: tribute is written produced and edited by myself a big thank you to crystal stark for her interview today for a complete list of music used in this podcast please read the description wherever you are listening for a list of songs and creative commons licenses Here's what to expect next time on Paying Tribute. A solemn look on a girl's face, a late a young woman's face who's selling beautiful fabrics, sitting there in a doorway of some little business that's not open, that's dilapidated. And I walk by and we make eye contact and her face just brightens right up. And she, she says, Charlie, I just came from Canada and I'm in front of your face. You're here. You recognize this as Charlie Chaplin I'm giving you and That's when something changed for me. I realized, really? That's a lot of energy for one person who was huge 100 years ago. To have that kind of power resonating today, right there in that little doorway, pretty crazy. We return with Charlie Chaplin on Paying Tribute.